0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and
1: inspired.
2: This is World Today.
1: Chinese President Xi Jinping calls for China and the European Union to avoid interference and enhance dialogue and cooperation. Top Chinese and U.S. diplomats agreed to build on recent progress in bilateral ties and work together on global challenges. And an external audit on Volkswagen plant in China's Xinjiang has found no indications of any use of forced labor. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping says China and the European Union should steer clear of various kinds of interference and enhance dialogue and cooperation. He made the comment during a meeting with European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in Beijing on Thursday. Yu Yang, tell us more.
3: It's actually the first face to face meeting between Chinese and European leaders in four years. Chinese President Xi Jinping met with President of the European Council, Charles Michel, and the head of the European Commission, who is Ursula von der Leyen. Well, she said he welcomes Presidents Michel and von der Leyen to China and for the 24th China-EU Leaders Summit. And actually, since the end of last year, the two presidents have visited China and the China-EU high-level dialogues in the fields of strategy, economy and trade, of course, grain and digital have achieved a rich resource and she said this is in line with the interests of both sides and the expectations of the peoples well the two sides should work together to maintain the momentum of the China EU relations Actually, this is the second time for von der Leyen's visit to China this year. And joining her is EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell, who has also paid a visit to China just this October. So earlier we had talked to Professor Cui Hongjie, who is at Beijing Foreign Studies University. He said that trade is at the foundation of China-EU ties. And this is actually backed by figures from Eurostat, which show the value of European imports from China nearly doubling between 2018 and 2022. And during the first half of 2023, China also remained the leading supplier of goods to the EU. while actually trade between the two reached nearly 850 billion US dollars last year, a 2.4% year-on-year. And more and more European officials have visited China this year. Those include the French President Emmanuel Macron and German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock. The presidents of European Union Chamber of Commerce in China we have interviewed earlier and said this signals Europe latest stress on its relationship with the country.
1: That was Yu Yang in Beijing. For a deeper exploration of the meeting and insights into the evolving landscape of China-EU relations, joining us on the line is Helga Zapp- larouche founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. Thanks for joining us, Helga.
2: Yes, hello. Thank you for asking me to be on the program.
1: First of all this is the first in-person summit between the top leaders of China and the European Union since 2019. What's your take on the significance of the resumption of in-person summits between China and the EU? Well, I think the
2: importance of personal meetings where people can actually look into each other's eyes and and you know it it tends to eliminate a lot of mistrust and and interference. And therefore, I think, you know, the idea of personal summits is always extremely important. Even if they don't eliminate all problems, it creates a basis for human trust. And I think that was a major, important accomplishment.
1: In your expert opinion, what do you consider to be the major takeaways from the recent meetings between President Xi and the leaders of the European Union? Any specific topics that attracted your attention?
2: Well, I think what President Xi Jinping stressed is that, you know, this is uh, taking place in a period of great changes and challenges. I mean, we have the Ukraine war. Now we have the horrible crisis in uh, uh, Southwest Asia. And therefore, you know, when President Xi Jinping emphasized that the Chinese-European relations affect peace, stability, and prosperity of the entire world, I think that's very true because the Chinese have— made a major initiative concerning the crisis in in the Middle East, asking for a comprehensive Middle East com- conference. And I think that, you know, to solve these problems does require the collaboration of all countries in the world who have an interest that we don't have an escalation into global war, which is mm-hmm. always hanging on the horizon as a danger. So therefore, I think, you know, the China... And Europe are at the two ends of the Eurasian continent. And as already Gottfried Leibniz stressed in the 17th century, that these two poles work together closely is extremely important for the whole world.
1: Then, given such a background, what areas of strategic consensus can China and the European Union prioritize to deepen their collaboration, considering uh, the rapidly changing global landscape and the shared interests between the two sides?
2: Well, obviously, the, one of the major shifts occurring right now is the rise of the global South, which is becoming the or has become since a long time the global majority. And most of these countries want to work with China. They are working with China in the Belt and Road Initiative. This is almost up to 150 countries of the world. And the the growth engine of the world is that cooperation between China and the countries cooperating with the BRI. So therefore, it is in the absolute fundamental interest of Europe to not be antagonistic to that New development, but to actually see the advantage, because this is future markets. These are p- countries which are, you know, mostly having young populations, and if you give them, you know, industrial development and education for the young people, then that is the future of the world economy, and it is also the way how Europe can get out of its present economic problems, which mm. are many, especially in the case of Germany, which is experiencing some major problems right now. So therefore, I think that, you know, if Germany and the European countries would somehow become more in tune with what China is doing in respect to the global south, it would really be a very important contribution towards stability.
1: Speaking of that, Helga, President Xi urged both sides to steer clear of various kinds of interference and emphasized on strengthening two-way political trust. How do you read his cause here? What are the potential sources of interference in your opinion?
2: Well, you know, recently at the San Francisco summit between Xi Jinping and President Biden, a certain amount of uh, stability and, and, you know, progress was accomplished. Nevertheless, you know, it was mainly the pressure from the Anglosphere on Europe to, you know, decouple from China. Then the Europeans answered to that by saying, no, no, we don't want to decouple, we only want to de-risk. But, you know, that in a certain sense is also, you know, a wrong approach because, If you really look at it objectively, then China, the Chinese economy, Chinese foreign policy is not trying to replace uh, anybody's imperialism, Mm -hmm. but China is promoting the idea of a harmonious development of all countries, and therefore, you know, it is actually a heaven of stability. So uh, one European, one German economic uh, business leader uh, actually said, if you want to de-risk then invest more in China because it's the most stable environment you can get. And I think that that is a message which eventually I hope will dawn even on the political representatives of the EU who sometimes are lagging behind the wisdom of the business community.
1: Helga, prior to the summit, Foreign Minister Wang Yi met with envoys and diplomats from the EU and its member states in Beijing. He emphasized that China's policy toward the EU remains stable and will not change due to any single incident. In your opinion, how has the stability in China's policy contributed to the overall development of China-EU relations?
2: Well, I think China... Uh... You know, if you look at the at the trajectory of Chinese economic policy, it has been since about 40 years an upward curve. You know, ever since Deng Xiaoping uh, introduced reform and opening up policies, China has been. In, it's the most incredible economic miracle which ever took place in in any country in the world. And since about 10 years, China has opened that model for countries of the Global South to cooperate in the BRI. And that has been a steady course. There were no ups and downs, no deviations. And I think that therefore, you know, while Europe has been much more vacillating, some countries are very much for the cooperation with the Belt and Road Initiative. Others, under the influence of the Anglosphere, have been more reluctant. So I think that China was for sure the factor of stability in the relation of the two.
1: Let's shift the gear to the EU's perspective. Uh, The European envoys and diplomats stated that uh, the EU is committed to developing constructive and stable EU-China relations with no intention of decoupling from China. But meanwhile, uh, EU officials expressed concerns about what they consider imbalanced economic relations. How do you view their concerns and what's your understanding of China-EU economic and trade relations going forward? forward.
2: Well, you know, the accusation against China uh, always is that, you know, China is uh, subsidizing its economy or, you know, that there are uh, trade barriers and so forth. If you look at it closely, it's, it's more complicated because the price competitiveness of Europe has become worse. That's basically due to the rise in the energy prices. Uh, this has geopolitical reasons, because, you know, Germany, for example, could have cheap energy from Russia, but for political reasons, you know, this is now uh, not the case anymore. And also, you know, th- the European economies are not investing enough in basic research and development. Therefore, they have been falling behind uh, technologically. Uh, Part of it is ideological, you know, that, for example, the German um, attitude against nuclear energy puts them as a very big disadvantage. If you look at the recent COP28 summit, many countries uh, are now going in the direction of developing nuclear energy, which obviously is uh, much more advantageous because of the high energy flux density. Uh, which is very important for the productivity of the production process. So there are many factors, uh, and I think, you know, the Europeans should really review their economic model and throw overboard a lot of ideological uh, burdens. Uh, And then I think there would be so many areas of the world where China and the EU could work productively together For example, you know, the development of Africa or now, you know, where there's the huge task to find stability in Southwest Asia, which must be based on economic uh, development because, you know, this is all a region of desert. So to develop fresh water, uh, build canals, build infrastructure, I mean, there's so many areas where it would be absolutely productive for China and Europe to to work together and that way overcome imbalances by development, you know, because it's not, you know, it's not a zero-sum game where one wins and the other one loses. But if both develop, then both
1: win. Thanks Helga for your insightful and thorough analysis. That's Helga zepp founder of the Schiller Institute, a Germany-based political and economic think tank. Coming up, top Chinese and U.S. diplomats agree to build on recent progress in bilateral ties and work together on global challenges. You're listening to Real Today. Stay with us.
2: Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us.
1: You are listening to Road Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi says China and the United States should continue to push for healthy, stable and sustainable bilateral ties. He made the remarks during a phone conversation with the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Wang called on the two sides to implement the consensus reached by the two heads of state during their recent meeting in San Francisco. He also said the U.S. should not interfere in China's internal affairs and not support 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 any Taiwan independence forces. To delve further into the recent phone conversation between Wang Yi and Anthony Blinken and to discuss the broader context of China US relations, let's have Professor Zhu Feng Ding of International Studies at Nanjing University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Zhu.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Professor, first of all, what do you make of the timing and purpose of the phone conversation between the two? What's your major takeaway?
0: I think the phone call is a very positive continuation of the uh, San Francisco summit meeting because both top leaders totally agree. So no matter how we different over a couple of a uh, uh, number of uh, issues, but we still needed to sticking together with each other. On the other hand, we also see, for example, you just mentioned. Uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi mentioned the Taiwan issue. If the U.S. continue to exploit the Taiwan issue as some sort of a very important leverage against the China, then obviously there's no way the Taiwan Strait, you know, the uh, stormy water will be totally coming down. So from this point, I see the uh, phone X trade between the, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi and the Secretary of State Lincoln is not just a productive you know, uh, continuation of the uh, summit meeting at uh, San Francisco, but it is also a sense sort of uh, a very interesting and a productive engagement between the Beijing and Washington on how mm-hmm. such a very uh, summit issue could be really under control.
1: Professor Blinken thanked Wang Yi for visiting the U.S. Embassy in China to mourn the passing of a former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Wang Yi emphasized on carrying forward the diplomatic legacy of Dr. Kissinger. How do you assess the impact of such a figure and his diplomatic practices on China-U.S. relations?
0: Yeah, when the, um, Dr. Kissinger passed away, we all feel very sad because mm-hmm. I think the legacy of Dr. The, of the Kissinger is not just, uh, we say, uh, help creating some sort of uh, resumption of the, uh, good relations between Beijing and Washington. Dr. Kissinger is a very, very uh, well-established Harvard uh, University professor, and uh, he is also a very insightful thinker. So he always emphasized, no matter how we divide the diverse, and the way how we are different. Mm-hmm. But we still need to to what? To look at itself in a very scientific and even realistic look. Mm-hmm. Because U.S. is, we say, uh, a hegemonic power in the world today. China is uh, symbol for the emerging and uh, rising power. So if the U.S. is always humanizing China's rise, then it could be imaginable, the Beijing Washington relations will have no way to just uh, how they be under control. So therefore, Dr. Kissinger, in his last few months when he is just uh, how they uh, stay alive, he always talked very loudly and honestly on how U.S. China relations could be under control. So just he is a very. Timely uh, warning to the both uh, governments is probably the, the window of opportunity uh, for the, uh, well better management of our relations is not more than ten years. Mm-hmm. So, Doctor Kissinger's warning is not just a timely and, with a uh, very just a productive. His warning also coming from. Uh, very well known career diplomats and well established scholars. So that's why I consider so far the Beijing and the Washington should have just uh, very notably and explicitly
4: mm-hmm.
0: weighing on the Dr. Kissinger's warning and also could just realistically and pragmatically handle our relations in a very positive way.
1: Speaking of that and the challenges or differences between China and the U.S., earlier you mentioned the Taiwan question and its diplomatic sensitivity. Uh, but on Wednesday, a U.S. anti-submarine patrol aircraft flew through the Taiwan Strait, made another provocative move, causing China to remain on high alert and organized warplanes to follow and monitor the transpassing. So how do you read a, such a provocation from the U.S. side? How might this Actions by the U.S. impact the diplomatic atmosphere and trust-building efforts between the two nations today.
0: Yeah, you raised a great point. So, so far, on the one hand, we see Beijing and Washington is very positively just engaging, by you know, not just uh, uh, resuming but also expanding some sort of such a high-level contacts and dialogue. But on the other hand. U.S. some sort of a provocative gesture they say, adopted vis-a-vis China, has never ended. So then, a lot of, uh, not just the warship, got closer to the Chinese, you know, mm-hmm. the, the shore, but also a lot of Americans, you know, some other planes, and even just uh, uh, some sort of strategic bombers just uh, trying to patrol along the China to show the muscle vis-à-vis China. Yes, the U.S. always just resting on such a hegemonic psychology and want to show in the muscle vis-à-vis China. Then what we will see it's really getting harder for both sides to let's say, manage some sort of such a uh, crispy relationship because China also have to have vis-à-vis Americans some sort of such a frequent near-shore Patchouli. Then it's some sort of a very, very potential, you know, the uh, points of the, let's um, say, explosive relations between the both sides. So from these points, I really hope American government could recognize even just the hegemonic priority and primacy were not just the state of America, you know, mm-hmm. the leading dominance in the region, but also provided, well, just laying out the seeds of the unrest uh, and even accidental, you know, collisions and just the trade-off of fire. So from this point, I really hope the both governments could take very serious, you know, some sort of uh, uh, some of the meeting consensus, male, mar- male relations should be resumed as soon as possible. On the other hand, that was the US also should to the world de-escalate the tension around some sort of a, such a going frequency of the uh, worship and um, fighter jets uh, vis-a-vis China uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, near you know areas. From this point, it, it also could just uh, you know not just the emboldening the confidence from each side, but also could reduce some sort of the uh, possibility of even existential collisions at the sea and in
1: air. Indeed. Thanks, Professor, for your time and insights. That's Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of International Studies at Nanjing University. This is Road Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. An audit on the Volkswagen plant in the western Chinese region of Xinjiang has found no indications of any use of forced labor. International Management Consultancy Loaning Human Rights and Responsible Business carried the audit among nearly 200 employees at the plant. The audit says the employees are qualified and have worked in the company for a long time, some up to 10 years. It shows the workers have low work intensity and are being paid above the regional average. According to a report by riders, Volkswagen investors demanded earlier this year that the automaker conduct an independent audit of labor conditions at the site in Xinjiang. So to talk more about the audit and groundless attacks on the human rights conditions in Xinjiang, let's have Mario Kavlo, founder and CEO of M Communications Group and a senior fellow of Center for China and Globalization. Great to have you back, Mario.
4: Always great to be back, and this is uh, such an interesting uh, topic, an overworn, it's its a worn topic. It's, it's very easy to talk to. I'm very familiar with the issues here.
1: Yes, I saw you wrote a lot of articles on Xinjiang, and you've been to Xinjiang before. So can you elaborate on the importance of this audit conducted independently in determining the presence or absence of forced labor at Volkswagen's Xinjiang plant?
4: Well, unfortunately, from the very beginning, in terms of how these findings impact the credibility of allegations, let's clarify a very, very key point here, which is that the allegations never had any credibility or evidence in the first place. The mm-hmm. entire matter, I'll probably say this 10 times during the interview tonight, uh, the entire matter has been a political charade. And, you know, listen to the words of, you know, Chinese foreign minister, uh, spokesperson Wang Wenbin, for example, right? We don't say who, who I'm quoting. We firmly reject these smears against China by anyone or any force uh, using human rights as a pretext and groundless accusations about the human rights conditions in Xinjiang. This is like a three year old story. Uh, so there is no credibility. And that's how the Volkswagen most recent audit. And I'll have more to say about that later. Uh. Mm-hmm. Impacts it. it just confirms what we've already known, that the Western political charade is nothing more than a charade to attack and smear China, and there's just no more credibility or veracity to it whatsoever in any way, and it's easy to prove that.
1: To make it more clear, Volkswagen said the audit was conducted in line with the internationally renowned SA8000 standard. What specific elements of the SA8000 standard were assessed during the audit? How does adherence to this standard contribute to ensuring human rights principles in the workplace?
4: Well, the SA8000 standard ensures adherence to the uh, standards of human rights and human rights principles in the workplace by focusing on the specific areas that you could pretty well easily understand child labor forced labor health and safety free association and collective bargaining uh, discrimination disciplinary practices working hours and compensation now the audit specifically assigns risk levels and required oversight well so what required oversight and risk levels were found in all those areas, none. And again, we already knew that. And that's mm-hmm. the part about this, is that you have politicians forcing, like, like it, it, it's like a woke uh, agenda, forcing response to baseless allegations. And great that the SA-8000 standard served its purpose. Many, many other audits have been done by many other companies doing business in Xinjiang, and it all paints the exact same picture.
1: Mario, I came across many reports or commentaries on this matter. Uh, Many experts believe this case has reflected the tussle or struggle between business and political circles in Europe. What's your take on such a comment?
4: Absolutely. In terms of considering this ongoing tussle between uh, business and political circles in Europe and China, let me focus on Volkswagen being, for example, a German company. Mm -hmm. And let me also note the other major German company that matters, BMW. And they do business not in Xinjiang, but here in Shenyang, my wife's hometown, where we live for the last six years. Mm -hmm. And they're an enormous contributor to the uh, Chinese economy, along with Volkswagen, Volkswagen and, and Motorola were the two, I think, the two original big uh, uh, foreign companies when I first came to China back in 1999 and 2000. They were Volkswagen and Motorola and uh, Nokia. So times have changed. But look at Volkswagen. They're still a very involved as a major force in automotive. Uh, and so what's happening with them tells us what's happening in the market and in the relationship between China and Europe. And it,
0: the results
4: reflect the tussle, reflect the ongoing tussle between these parties. How, how? Well, that it shows us that the tussle is not necessary. These conflicts are being made up. They're not necessary. They're creating unnecessary tension at a time when the world needs peace and cooperation.
1: Then, what do you make of the reasons behind such attacks? What are those blames or politicized allegations aiming for to targeting big companies like, uh, you mentioned, Volkswagen, BMW, foreign companies like this?
4: Sure. When we think about the reasons behind the attacks, we have to shift our focus a little bit from Europe over to the United States. Unfortunately, European leaders have allowed themselves to be bullied and harassed uh, and influenced by United States interests. And United States interests are, as they themselves have stated, including uh, you know, current Trade Secretary Gina Raimondo, to stop China's development. That they, they don't like that China has risen up to become the world's next superpower. They are. And especially that China has done that in peace. So all of this is about the United States' strategic interests to to stop China. And this is done uh, not by a good faith competition, but by these smear campaigns, like uh, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said. These are smear campaigns, and they've extended it out to the EU leaders, who have decided to go along with the game. And of course, you know, standing what was it the the U.K. ministers who five out of 50 U.K. ministers stood up and officially declared that there's a, a, a genocide in Xinjiang. I mean, this is just a political circus without, you know, without any basis for the allegation.
1: Speaking of the situation within the EU or uh, within the United States, uh, we see human rights issues are being weaponized and politicized, uh, which has been seen as a Contrary to market rules and companies' interests, can you elaborate on how this dynamic influences business relations with other parts of the world?
4: You know, if I was doing business with a certain part of the world, you know, say certain companies from European countries, and then all of a sudden I see how they're treating China, playing this game, That would reduce my sense of confidence and trust in doing business with them. I would think, gee, you know, when are they going to come along and and treat me the same way? Uh, So it doesn't add credibility to the United States position to smear China. It takes away credibility. They become less trustable. The EU companies that are involved in this, the EU commissions, the organizations, the NGOs, whoever they are, who are... uh, Putting forth, you know, spewing this this kind of propaganda and creating these these fake narratives and frameworks, it, it, it in my mind, if, if I was an onlooker considering doing business with them or doing business with them, would make me very unhappy and very uncomfortable and feel less and less capable of trusting them and believing in their integrity in doing business. So they're not doing themselves any favors. But they're, they're damaging themselves more than they're damaging China.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mario, for your insightful analysis and time. That's Mario Cavallo, founder and CEO of M Communications Group and a senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Russian President Vladimir Putin has paid a visit to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia to boost bilateral ties and discuss regional issues. During his meeting with UAE President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al nayyan the two sides explored ways to enhance their strategic partnership. They highlighted the importance of international efforts to achieve a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip and protect civilians. Addressing the Ukraine crisis, the UAE President affirmed his country's commitment to resolving conflict through diplomacy and dialogue. In his meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Putin and the Saudi leader pledged to collaborate on ensuring stability in the Middle East. They also agreed to deepen cooperation in energy, trade and investment. So to delve further into President Putin's trip to the Middle East, let's bring in Timo Kibimaki, Professor of International Relations at University of Bath. Thanks for joining us, Professor.
5: Thanks very much for inviting
1: uh, What do you make of the timing and the significance of President Putin's visit to the Middle East? What are the key focal points of this trip?
5: I think... Uh... It is true that uh, these are rare visits uh, to United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, yet I think uh, we can expect more of uh, Russian uh, visits uh, to these countries and and other countries in the Middle East. Uh, I think we are actually seeing uh, some significant changes of of geopolitics in the region, Uh, and these visits uh, kind of testify to that. Uh, um, There is naturally the global disgust of Israel's war operations uh, that the US and some European countries support- with weapons and diplomatic support. Uh, uh, There's also the Western trend towards uh, rather ad hoc illegal moves to punish, uh, especially Russia- but also Syria, Venezuela and North Korea by simply confiscating money or oil or or other resources that belong to these countries. Uh, All this weakens uh, the willingness of non-Western world, especially the Arab world, to follow U.S. uh, leadership in the Middle East. Uh, Furthermore, um, there's this there is the improving of ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which kind of reduces the need for U.S. war support for the Saudi camp. Uh, that also United Arab Emirates belongs to. All this increases independence of these countries uh, of the U.S. lead. And I think um, the willingness to offend the the West and, and, and the U.S. by hosting Putin is an example of this independence.
1: Mm -hmm. Professor, there are discussions on bilateral cooperation, the oil market, and issues such as Ukraine and Israeli-Palestinian conflicts between Putin and the Middle East, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. But how would you characterize the current Russia and the Middle East relations?
5: I think uh, this relationship is mainly based on the common fear of interference uh, in domestic affairs uh, by the West. Uh, Mm. There has been a lot of discussion discussion in the West, uh, for example, about whether the continuation of Putin's rule in Russia is acceptable, as if this was something that uh, the West can decide. Um, There were similar discussions about leadership of Saudi Arabia after the killing of of this uh, journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, in, the, in, in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. I think this discussion in which uh, Western countries openly discuss uh, about who can and who cannot continue to lead other countries uh, as if the West had any say in that uh, has alerted many Middle Eastern autocracies. Mm. Uh, there There is a common interest against foreign meddling in the internal affairs of countries and uh, this is uh, something that binds you know united arab emirates and saudi arabia together with uh, with russia uh, obviously uh, obviously this is uh, despite the fact that uh, russia cannot uh, be seen as a, as a as a main defender of sovereignty-based uh, world order after its gross violations of of, of ukraine's sovereignty mm-hmm.
1: Professor, uh, on bilateral relations and also on the Ukraine crisis, the UAE president emphasized that his country was committed to resolving conflicts worldwide through diplomacy and dialogue, especially in the Ukraine conflict. How do you read his comments on this? What message does he try to convey?
5: I don't know what he tries to convey, but I think he is right. Uh, On the one hand, I I do think that uh, the conflict in Ukraine is becoming ripe for a resolution. I do not expect a peace deal there because then one needs to save the face of both parties, uh, but certainly a ceasefire that could also define many of the political conditions of peace uh, for many years to come. Uh, And there... I think United Arab Emirates could uh, be a facilitator and and maybe a mediator, just as well as as, as Turkey and China has have been. Uh, Qatar has been tremendously useful uh, for the solution uh, in Afghanistan and uh, and and also in in the Palestine conflict where it um, mediated and facilitated uh, the discussion on. On, on on the the, the humanitarian post there, so so why shouldn't uh, United Arab Emirates uh, mm-hmm. be important as well? I think uh, they should uh, they should uh, uh, try to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Then, Professor, they also talked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the issue of stability in the Middle East. How do you perceive Russia's role and position in Middle Eastern affairs today?
5: I think. Um, Yeah, I think um, um, it's not really uh, so much related to to stability in the Middle East uh, that affects uh, Russia's position in the Middle East. I think it's more about the changing perceptions of the West. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think Western support uh, for for the the, uh, atrocities uh, in Palestine, uh, the, in, the increasing arms sales uh, both from the US and the UK and uh, some other Western countries to Israel erodes Western legitimacy in the Middle East and this benefits Russian's uh, geopolitical position. Uh, uh, it will be difficult for, for Arab state especially uh, or any Muslim state to accept Israel's actions uh, against Palestinian civilians. Uh, this clearly angers. Uh, uh, and, and this anger can be capitalized by Russia. Uh, it also, to some extent, Russia can also perhaps improve its global image and its image uh, amongst uh, Arab states. Uh, uh, obviously, Russia has its own war. Uh, uh, according to BBC uh, some time ago, uh, uh, about uh, 15% of fatalities of war in Ukraine were civilians. But it's 15%. Uh, This is quite low compared, for example, to former Yugoslavia, where where fatalities of all parties uh, were between 32 and 36 percent, I mean, uh, civilian fatalities. Uh, In Palestine, Israeli forces themselves admitted that two-thirds of fatalities of war uh, were civilians. And uh, there has been reliable estimates that this could be much higher, uh, even over 90%. Mm -hmm. We already know that about 40% of fatalities in Palestine are are children. So Mm -hmm. this way, I think it's quite clear that uh, Russia can use uh, uh, this perhaps to improve its uh, global image, despite uh, its own unacceptable brutality in, in Ukraine.
1: Thanks, Professor, for shedding light on Russian President Putin's trip to the Middle East. That's Timo Kibimaki, Professor of International Relations at University of Bath in the UK. This is Rowe Today. Stay with us.
6: Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China-area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today.
1: You are listening to Road Today. President of the Environmental Defense Fund, Fred Krupp, has highlighted the crucial China-U.S. partnership in the global fight against climate change during the ongoing UN climate conference in Dubai. Fred also noted that he has witnessed remarkable positive changes in China's air quality and renewable energy from his 30 years with the EDF in China. So for more on this, my colleague Wang Guan sat down with the president in Dubai.
7: Fred, in your opinion, what have been the biggest accomplishments during this year's
6: COP in Dubai? Well, on day one of this year's COP, two amazing things happened that have never happened before at any COP. One, the whole agenda for the conference was approved on day one. Sometimes that doesn't happen until the end of the COP, believe it or not. And also on day one, there was an approval for the structure of a loss and damage fund and even some hundreds of millions of dollars put into it, not enough but um, those were surprising and good accomplishments. The other big thing that happened on the side of the COP was um, very important announcements on methane. You once said that uh, cutting methane
7: use is the surest route to fight against climate change.
6: Why? Well, because methane is more than 80 times more powerful pound for pound than carbon dioxide. So when we cut methane emissions, we can reduce the temperatures and the ferocity of cyclones that we would otherwise see in the next 10 years by getting the methane emissions down. And then what is the percentage
7: of methane use uh, when it comes to the, the big picture of you know, emission
6: uh, producing uh, gases? So um, right now about a third of the global warming we're experiencing is from methane but when we look at it on a go forward basis methane emissions will warm the planet about the same amount over the next ten years, methane emissions from say this year will warm the planet about the same amount over the next ten years as all the carbon dioxide coming from all the burning of fossil fuels on the planet. So this is not a reason to go slow on carbon dioxide we have to bring those emissions down as fast as we can for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But if we want to see an immediate impact of cutting emissions, that's where methane is so important.
7: Let's talk about the specifics. Um, you talk about the potency of um, methane's polluting effects. Um, how so in terms of you know, entrapping
6: um, heat uh, in the hemisphere, um, atmosphere, rather? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, methane is CH4. And that molecule, uh, what it does is it is a very good uh, insulator. It traps heat. Carbon dioxide does the same thing, but ounce per ounce, the methane traps 83 times more heat than the same weight of- Eighty times? 80 times, more than 80 times than the same weight of carbon dioxide. So it's really potent and it comes from many things that we do in our economy. It comes from oil and gas, it comes from uh, landfills, it comes from coal mines, and it comes from livestock. Animal agriculture is a big source of methane, also from the burps from the cow. We've been talking about a
7: just transition, how important is it and are we seeing it?
6: Well, we're not seeing uh, fast enough action. Uh, The the COP process, the world needs to accelerate its move away from fossil fuels and toward clean energy. And in addition, it needs to do that in a way where people can thrive. So we can't hold people down. We need uh, people that don't yet have access to electricity to be able to have electricity. So we need to lower emissions dramatically while, at the same time, lifting people up. That's the only way to solve global warming. That's fair. It needs to be fast and fair.
7: In some African countries we visited, uh, there's no such thing as uh, solar because they don't have enough sunlight, uh, and they don't have hydropower because they don't have enough wind. Um, so just echoing what you said, I mean, people there got the right to consume electricity.
6: Um, you know, they don't have necessarily those green means. Well, absolutely. And one great contribution that China is making, it's the leading manufacturer in the world of solar power, and it's making solar panels available at lower costs. So this makes it more practical, both in countries that are sunny and even now in countries that have less sun. How important is a China-U.S.
7: partnership? Uh, was was evidenced by the latest uh, Suniland statements uh,
6: after the Xi-Biden summit in the global fight against climate change. Well, um, China and the United States are the two biggest economies in the world. They're the two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, and they are the two most powerful countries in the world. So there's nothing that could be more important and climate change than having our two great powers cooperate with each other and it was so encouraging both in Sunnylands and then here at the COP to see China and the United States announcing new agreements to cooperate for instance on methane both countries agreed that in the future they will write commitments on how each country uh, will manage its methane pollution into its uh, nationally determined commitments, which is a fancy way of saying our uh, pledges to the world. Mm-hmm. Out of all the agreements, uh, the articles,
7: uh, re- as was reflected in the Sunnyland statements and uh, uh, their um, you know, uh, expressions, endorsements of support uh, by, by Xi on the Chinese side and John Kerry on the American side, uh, what sticks out to you? What specifics stand out to you as important and promising? Mm-hmm.
6: Well, actually, because of the role of non-CO2 gases in warming our Earth up fast, the agreement to include all of them, methane, nitrous oxide, F-gases, into future commitments by both countries is tremendously important because when the United States and China do that, it sets a good example that everyone should control not just carbon dioxide, but all the problematic polluting gases that are causing this uh, great problem. Mm -hmm. And also um, the Chinese
7: experience, the China experience has
6: been much talked
7: about. Um, From your vantage point, uh, what are some of the best practices that you've seen not only in China, but across the world that perhaps can be shared with our audience uh, from around the world?
6: Well, the, uh, the Environmental Defense Fund has had the privilege to be working in China for almost 30 years we have partnered with the ministry of uh, environment and ecology during that time and we have seen tremendous change in china we have seen the air in the cities become so much cleaner which is so important not only for climate change but for people's day-to-day health we have seen china emerge as the leading nation in the world in terms of producing solar energy and uh, batteries, and wind turbines, and electric vehicles. We need to move transportation to electric buses, electric trucks, and electric cars. And China has been a, a great leader in that. So there, uh, I am very gratified that we are making progress on this problem. So many times people feel an absence of hope, um, but there are good things happening. Where faring short,
7: according to the United Nations report, uh, if you look at the initial conclusion from the global stock take, um, the, the globe will be warming up to 2.4 degrees, uh, you know, far shorter, uh, which is falling short of the 1.5 degree target. Um, is that trend uh, avoidable uh, going into the next decade?
6: Oh, absolutely. We need to do far better than we're doing now. You're absolutely right, Guan. The world is falling short. We need to accelerate the transition and we can do it. Just the other day, 50 of the world's uh, leading oil and gas companies, representing 40% of the whole industry, pledged that they're going to reduce their emissions of methane, this is globally, by 80 to 90%. That was a very big deal. And at the same time, it's true that the United States can do more. It's true that China can do more. Every one of us and every country can do more. And we need to not give up on this task. We need to redouble our efforts, even though a lot of good things are
1: happening. That was Fred Krupp, President of the Environmental Defense Fund. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For more discussion, you can follow us on X at CDTN Radio. I'm Ke Thank you so much for staying with us. Bye for now.